0: John, one of the pastors here, it's my privilege to welcome you and to lead a really exciting panel that you're going to hear today. If you're new at First Free and just joining us, or you've recently started joining us as we've been streaming online, we're so glad that you found us, and we want to talk to you more about how to be involved and what our church means. We normally would do something we call dinner with the pastor, where you would have an opportunity to have dinner with our senior pastor, Adam, and that's not happening now because we're not getting together, but we are doing the best we can, which is a... Google Hangout with Pastor Adam. So if you would want to go to to one of those, the next one, go to efree.org slash connect and we'll get you on the online Hangout so you'll be able to uh, meet our pastor and learn more about our church. We are so grateful for your faithful giving during this time. we're continuing to do ministry, serving people inside our church, our discipleship ministry, things for our kids. In fact, sometimes we're, we're switching things and we're making this online ministry happen in some really, really cool ways, which needs resources. And then we're also reaching out to the community. So your giving is so, so critical at this time. And thank you for your faithful giving. You could go to efree.org slash groups, or I'm sorry, go to efree.org slash give, and you can give there. I mentioned groups because that's where we want you to be plugged in. If you're not plugged in to a group, you could go Go to efree.org slash groups. That's where you can dive deeper, even into some of the things we're talking about today. For example, the groups that that do sermon-based studies will take the questions from the panel we're going to do today. And that becomes your topic to wrestle with. And so our groups go deeper into the messages and and grow in community. So if you want more information, go to efree.org slash groups groups. Last week, we had a wonderful panel uh, talking about the COVID-19 crisis and how this epidemic, this pandemic is impacting us and our relationships and personally. And we're going to keep that going today, only the, the topic today is going to be a little bit more, what's the Bible have to say about this? Where does God in this? How are we interacting as Christians with other people in the world? And how are we supposed to interpret this? Same rules apply as last week, in that we are not going to be able to go really in depth on these questions. You sent in some wonderful questions, and we have a lot of them. We're going to do as many as we can. If you're online, you can put a question in the chat feature on on, online. We'll do our best to incorporate those into the conversation as well today. Uh, just keep in mind that there are books written about each one of these topics. And the two people that are our panelists today have read a lot of those books and they could talk for hours on each one of these topics. So they're gonna uh, discipline themselves and we're gonna give you really, really good practical answers to some of these questions. But know that you may walk away from some of these topics a little less than satisfied because we haven't done everything that you would want us to do. But we, we are really confident this is gonna be an encouraging time for you. Our two. Pan- panelists are two people who are really familiar to you and have served our church faithfully. Uh, Adam Bowers, our current senior pastor for the last couple of years, is a panelist now. So Adam, thanks for coming and sharing with us in this way. And then our former senior pastor, Bill is on the panel. Bill, it's good to have you back up front. It's great to be back here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes, and, and we're just going to call him Bill today. We're not going to use his last name because he's actually doing incredible gospel work all around the world, and some of the areas he goes into are, are really uh, secure areas, and we want to be sure that we're protecting him and his family there. So it's great to have them with us. I'm going to jump right in and throw these guys in the deep end of the pool with the sovereignty of God in this whole thing. How are we going to view this in terms of where is God in this? And I'm going to start by sharing a few of the videos that you have submitted, and we're going to watch those, and then I have one email submission I'm going to read. And then we're just going to let them talk to each other about this, and we're going to listen in and hear some incredible, incredible truth. So let's begin by hearing Brian's question. If God did not directly cause or will this coronavirus mutation's existence, And that is just part of our fallen and broken world. Could God have prevented the virus from spreading to humans in the first place? And if so, does that make God responsible for the virus's global spread and all its pain and suffering,
1: regardless of the silver linings we see? I'm just asking for a friend.
0: So Brian's bringing up an important question that many people have. Could God have prevented this pandemic? Um, Could he have kept it from spreading to humans? Is he responsible for the destruction that it caused? Now, let's hear from Scott.
1: The other day, I overheard a conversation between two co-workers. One co-worker seemed to think that maybe God was using the coronavirus as a means for us to cry out to him and as a nation to repent while another coworker couldn't understand why loving God would allow people to suffer the way they have during this time. Um, And uh, so my question would be is, how would you speak to both ways of thinking?
0: So Scott brings up some other important questions. Um, Where's repentance come into this? Where does interacting with our friends and coworkers who are are raising these questions? Now let's hear from Tom.
1: Hi, Adam. A question concerning uh, coronavirus when it comes to meeting people in public. Uh, my question would be if someone you come in contact with has had a loss or someone in their family has gotten very sick and you know there's a skepticism that comes about related to God, how do you deal with this? How do you handle this? How do you uh, let people know... Uh, your stance on uh, how God is dealing with all this. So just thought I'd throw that at you. Thank you.
0: last week we talked about some of the emotional relational aspects of suffering, but it's a a valid question. Where's God in this suffering? Uh, How does he interact with that? And and if that produces skepticism on people's parts, how do we interact with them? And the last video we'll, we'll watch for this section is Imran's video.
2: Hi, my name is Imran Nasser, and I'm speaking from Pakistan. I'm working as a missionary in the northern side of the country. First of all, I would like to thank Pastor Bover for providing us this opportunity. My question is, though I believe that God is in control and he's sovereign
1: in this pandemic situation, but when we speak to new believers or to those who are in the process of believing in Christ,
2: it is hard to explain them that God loves them and cares about them when they are hearing so much about the wrath of God so how can we better explain them that God loves them and God cares about them thank you very much
0: God's love and care are certainly important questions and topics to, to include here. And then Gloria sent this in via email, if God is sovereign and he has chosen before the foundation of the world the day that we will die and two million people die every year in America, why should we be fearful and worried and upset and counting the coronavirus deaths? So a lot of important questions about suffering and sovereignty and where's God in this. So Adam, I'll let you start and then we'll go to Bill and come back and we'll just keep kicking this round.
2: Okay. There are a lot of interesting questions there, and it's probably good for people to know that those are lumped together because the answers overlap so much. And to go back to what you said at the beginning, we're not going to be able to cover this in great detail, but hopefully what we do share will be helpful for most people that are watching this. So where do we start when we're dealing with questions of God's sovereignty, and did he cause this, and could he have stopped it, and how do we respond to people who are wrestling with this? I would start with the Bible, and that may sound like a Sunday school answer, but I'm gonna go somewhere with it. I start with the fact that the Bible is my source of truth. It's, it's where I learn about God and what I should believe about God. And so there may be people watching this right now who don't agree with me on that, and that's fine. Just give me that presupposition for a minute that the Bible is true in, in the system of Christianity that we believe in. We're gonna start with that as our source, and the Bible teaches us everything we need to know about God. So if you're wanting to know what is the Christian's answer to where is God at and all of this, we have to start with the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about God? Well, it tells us that he is loving. It tells us that he is good, that he is merciful, that he is the creator of all things. And it also tells us that he is sovereign. But we have to talk about what we mean by that and Christians will disagree on what exactly they mean by that, but I'm going to share what I believe about God's sovereignty because I think it's actually really important to help to understand some of these more challenging situations that we see in the world. What's commonly called as the problem of evil or the problem of pain by C.S. Lewis. Uh, How do we reconcile this with a loving and gracious God? The fact that we have... Uh, suffering and, and pain and viruses and diseases and yet we have a loving and gracious God. How is that possible? If God is sovereign and he has the ability to, to re- just remove all this suffering and pain, why doesn't he? So I believe that God's sovereignty does not mean that God causes all things to happen. That would be fatalism. That's actually something that the early church fathers wrote against as a pagan concept. The idea that God is actively causing everything, that he's the author of evil, that he is is the one that initiates um, evil and and wickedness, and and that's not what we see in Scripture at all uh, from my perspective, from my point of view. But God's sovereignty means that he has the authority and the ability to do anything. That's what God's sovereignty means in my view, that he has the authority and ability to do anything. Those two words are, are very important. So God has the authority and the ability. He had the ability even to create beings with the ability to reject him. God is so powerful that he can create beings that can make a willful decision to reject him. And that's exactly what happened right the the first people rejected god and made a decision to do that and so god is loving yes god is gracious god is sovereign and that has the, he has the authority and the ability to do anything he wants to including create people that rejected him the bible also says that god is working to reconcile and redeem people to himself Now, why would he have to do those things? The only reason to reconcile is because there is some separation that exists between God and people. The reason to redeem is because there's something bad that he needs to redeem them from. So what is that, that God is is having to reconcile from some separation or redeem people? Well, without getting too much into the theology of it, to be very simple about it, he is reconciling and redeeming from the consequences of people's actions when they rejected him. And so we would look at everything like the coronavirus and anything else that's bad in our world and say, this is not how God initially designed it. This is the result of the consequences that God warned people about. And and those consequences were for their rejection of him. And so when we ask a question like, is God responsible for the coronavirus? Well, yes, in the sense that he created the elements of nature that allow for a virus to occur, but no in the sense that it was the consequences of human actions actually that brought about disease and natural disasters and wars and all of the things that we experience today that we question, where is God in all of this? And so it's not what God initially designed. So why doesn't he just put an end to it? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he remove suffering from us? Why doesn't he take the coronavirus away? Well, God actually has a plan to remove all suffering and all pain from everyone who follows him. That plan is in the works. It It is ready to go. It is actively acting right now as God reconciles and redeems people. But God has chosen not to just make it happen in an instant. Not to just immediately make it happen because he wants people to, his created beings, to live and to have families and to fill the earth and to build a big family for him. To have a lot of people who get to join and be a part of his family. And so he allows more time for that to happen. Now that means the consequences of people's actions continue on in that process, and, and God does not just immediately remove all of that from us, but he will one day remove all of that from us. He will one day wipe away the tears and, and we will live in, in a perfect place with him. But he is patient about when he does that. And Peter actually writes about this. In Second Peter, he says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? Again, from before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. So where is God in all of this? We don't see him. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. I mean, a lot of people do try to find any way they can to make sure that there is no God involved in the creation of these things. And yet we know it was God that brought about this world and this universe. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends, A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. Now here's the verse I really wanted to get to, but I wanted people to have that context because otherwise it's easy to to take the wrong thing away from this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. And after that, we will not have suffering anymore. We won't experience that anymore. But there has to be a cleansing and a justice and a removal of that suffering for that to take place. And God is being patient about when that will occur. And so, no, something like the coronavirus is not a part of God's initial direction. It is a consequence of the rebelliousness and sinfulness of humans. And I'm not saying that that this specific coronavirus was specifically given by God in response to some specific sin necessarily. I'm just saying that in general, everything, all the wars, the natural disasters, the viruses, all that we experience is that result of people's sin. And so trying to figure out where, where God's sovereignty is at in all of this and, and whether he's the, the cause of it, it's kind of a nuanced conversation, but it's important to understand that God is working in all of this to bring more people into his family and to draw more people to himself. And he's patient and allowing some of these consequences to continue to play out to let more people be a part of his family.
0: That's awesome. It, it, takeaway among other things is that the frame of reference that we tend to have with something like this is very limited. We're looking at this circumstance and you're helping us to see that there are contributors, generally contributors that come from long ago and there's a place we're going in God's hope. That's great. Yeah. I want to give Bill a chance and
1: then we'll come back. So would you like to share any thoughts you had or interact with what Adam shared? I I don't think people realize how hard it is to say what Adam said in the time frame (laughs) that he said it in. So I feel like Adam did such a great job. Let me just follow up on one one of the thoughts that he had embedded in his response, and that is the redemptive power of God in the midst of the mess that sin has created. It's hard for us to grasp that because sin not only created the problem, it affects our ability to process the problem. And you you referenced C.S. Lewis' book, The Problem of Pain. He talks about how God uses pain redemptively. And this is a quote from the book that's always helped me. To understand how God uses it, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our consciences, and he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. He actually uses the mess we've created to speak to us, to awaken us to the need that we have for redemption. So I can give you a, a personal example. Uh, When I was a little boy, probably about four years old, my dad was a doctor. He used to bring home the immunization shots that we needed as kids. So when dad pulled out the syringe, do you think my first reaction was, my father is so wise and loving and good to bring these shots home? No, we were running all over the house hiding. And you can see how my dad had a perspective that was different from mine. He knew that this short-term pain would provide long-term benefit. And he wasn't being cruel. He wasn't being sadistic in actually imposing this pain on me. He was being wise and loving. So that's sort of a simple picture of the redemptive power of pain in the hands of God. I think the other question that came out of those different uh, videos and the question Gloria asked was, how do we engage with this at a personal level? I think for Gloria, for example, here's someone we hear a posture of faith and she may have the gift of faith like you all talked about. Adam, you mentioned that last week. It's hard for someone with the gift of faith to understand why others may wrestle with this. But that's where I think we need to have the posture that is prophesied of the Messiah by Isaiah. This is what Isaiah wrote about the coming Messiah. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. And I think that's what we need. We need to ask the Lord Jesus to give us listening ears so that we can hear what he wants us to hear as we're trying to minister to other people. You know, in some cases, they may be asking questions, but they don't want philosophical, theological, biblically-rooted answers, they want to know, will you enter in, into this pain with me? Will you care for me as a person? And that may be more powerful in addressing their need immediately than actually giving them the right answer or, as we might put it, winning the argument. Uh, only one person, ultimately, and I think this is where uh, our brother Imran's question goes, how do we know about God's love? Well, there's only one person who really experienced unjust suffering that's ever walked this planet, and that's the Lord Jesus. He loved God perfectly, he loved others perfectly, he never said, did, desired anything that was apart from the will of his Father, and yet you read about how he's described. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That was a result of our sin. And yet he waded into it, and he did it with a purpose, to show this eternal love of God for us, and to take from us the garbage that our sin had created, the damage that it had done, the pain it had inflicted, he bore it himself, so that we wouldn't have to. So if we ever want to help people see, can Can we know that God is loving in the midst of these circumstances? We can go to this unchanging expression, the greatest expression of God's love. He he personifies the very redemption that we're saying is
0: is happening right now through this. I I love that. Uh, Any other thoughts, reflections on this topic?
2: Well, just as we think about how to help people who are wrestling with this, and I know a lot of the people submitting questions, that's where they're coming from, is how do I help others through this? Just remember that, As we've said many times around here, you are not other people's Holy Spirit. It's not your job to convince them or to give them all the good arguments. And I know that's not where everybody's coming from on this, but just keep that in mind. I think that can actually be a very freeing concept. Don't feel like you have to be the one that that flips on all the light bulbs for them. Um, Just love them. That's, that's obedience for you is to love them, uh, care about them. Like Bill said, enter into their pain and ask the questions that get underneath the surface of what they're asking about. How are they handling this? How are they feeling about this? And then you can get into how does your faith help you in the middle of this? And maybe some of what we talk about a little bit later on today will help with that as well. Give people some, some tools in the tool belt to answer those questions. But then also just remember that people exist on a spectrum when it comes to faith. And so you've got people that are far from God and are questioning and are seeking and are then at the point of trusting in God and then growing with God. And if someone is over here at a negative eight It's not your job to get them to a plus five in one conversation. What might be a win is just to see them move one or two steps on that spectrum. And so that's that's up to them and the Holy Spirit. What you can do is be faithful in how you represent your faith. And, and I hope that the things that we've shared, to, shared today and will share in a little bit will give people uh, some, some words to use to help them communicate that because they probably already have a lot of that. And here it's just getting it out there in a way that's gonna make sense to people. But just don't feel the pressure of thinking that you've gotta somehow resolve this for them. You have to be a faithful witness and, and demonstrate your your faith to them and then let the Holy Spirit do his work.
0: That's awesome. And, and I want to let our online congregation know that, that Bill and Adam have, have spent more time on this initial topic of the sovereignty of God than we're going to do on these other topics because this topic actually will will be embedded into all of the subsequent conversations and we may very well come back. So, so we're going to move to a topic of trusting in God, but it definitely is connected. Uh, so I'm going to read a couple of our questions and then Bill, I'm going to let you begin with this section how can I learn to trust God more when I'm wrestling with doubts all the time? Another question, I'm finding it hard to relate to God in the middle of so much disappointment, suffering, and grief. How can I connect with a God that seems so to stand at a distance and allow such horrible things to happen to tens of thousands of people? Talk about
1: trust. Yeah, these are great questions. I think you look through the Bible, you look throughout history, you look in our own time, these are the kinds of questions that thoughtful people ask. Uh, One of the Psalms begins this way. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And there is this sense that times of pain and suffering evoke those questions from us. And we have to wrestle with those. And when you think about a relationship of trust, how does trust grow? Trust grows when... We grow in knowledge of the other person. We see that they are trustworthy. That's part of why we need to keep going back to the life of Jesus because we see what God did in order to deal with the problems of pain and suffering. But there's also that sense that when someone we love does something that is different from what we expect, it may hurt us, it may concern us. Sometimes we wanna draw away rather than go to that person And resolving the question doesn't happen when we isolate ourselves from the person. It actually happens when we engage with the person. And so I would encourage people who may be wrestling with this, don't pull back from God. Come to God. Bring your questions to Him. He already knows what they are. He knows the doubts are. He knows the emotions. So be honest with Him like what we see modeled for us in the Scriptures. That is how we are going to grow in our trust in God. It's going to come by engaging with him in the word, allowing the Bible, allowing him to speak to us about who he is and what he's doing through the scriptures. Will he answer all of our questions? No, he doesn't do that. But it will be the way that we can grow in our trust. I guess another perspective that I wanna share briefly, John, is we always trust implicitly our own viewpoint. I mean, we hold our viewpoint because we believe it's the right understanding of a situation. But I think we need to sometimes question our questions. And let me see if I can give a a little scenario that would illustrate this. Let's suppose during this pandemic, you have a needy neighbor, needy in many different ways. And you decide, this is a person who needs help. So out of your generosity, out of your grace, out of your concern and love, you decide, I'm gonna make sure they have enough to eat because you realize they've struggled financially. So you take over a meal and you leave it outside. They, they get it, pick it up, and you do that for a couple of days. You never hear anything from the person. And you think, well, maybe it's about social distance or you know, there's always been a little awkwardness socially there. And then you take a meal over and you notice there's a note out on the table. And it says, you know, I really didn't like what you brought yesterday. Can we not serve that again? And the next day you go and there's another note that says, you know, it really wasn't warm enough, the meal. Can you make sure it's delivered hot? And then the next day you have a migraine. So you're not able to get up and prepare the meal. And the next thing you know, there's an, there's an email going around your neighborhood talking about how, how cruel you are that you didn't actually deliver a meal to this person. How would that make you feel? And I think sometimes we need to realize God is like that neighbor who's providing. And when he doesn't provide, there may be a very good reason that we're not aware of, but we have this sense that we are due these blessings that God has given us, the blessing of our health, the blessing of our relationships that we value, the blessing of a job, all these things, and that God is duty-bound to provide it for us. Well, that's our perspective sometimes. How could you take these things away from me? But God gives those blessings to us out of his love, out of his generosity, out of his grace, not because we deserve it, but because he is who he is. So sometimes I think we need to question our questions.
0: That's a great story. And it even,
1: it even pulls out what we talked about earlier, that
0: it could even be a lack of gratitude or, or realization or consciousness of Just the fact that we can suffer this way and God didn't, you know, wipe us all out after the fall and we had no hope here that that we are in the midst of blessings and that's the context for trust. So pick that up there, Adam, and share with us.
2: Well, when we're asking about trusting in God and, you know, a lot of people are wrestling with that in the middle of all of this, I would say just to echo what Bill said, that this is not the time to run away from trusting God, it's the time to trust God, and here's why. We trust when we don't understand something. That's when we need to trust. We trust when we don't have all the knowledge, we don't fully know what's going on, that's why trust is necessary. So, for instance, I have no idea what is holding the atoms of this chair together. I don't, I don't know how that all uh, works, but I trust that it works, and so I plop down in this chair, trusting that it will hold me up, and I think that's the way we kind of need to look at trust during a situation like this that, that does cause us to question things. I know a lot of people are doing that. I would encourage you, just like Bill did, this is not the time to run from God, this is the time to run to Him. Not understanding the purpose behind the coronavirus is not a reason not to trust in God, it's a reason to trust in Him, really, if you think about it. And I think that uh, along with that, our, our view of suffering sometimes is very one-dimensional. Where, where we do think that if something is happening that appears to be bad to us, then it must just be bad. It's a very black and white kind of view of suffering. And that's just not the reality of how suffering works in the world. What is suffering to one person may actually be a very good thing to another person. For instance, if you have a country that experiences a plague and tens of thousands of people die and it cripples their economy, to that country, that is suffering. That is tremendous suffering. To the individuals in that country, that is suffering. If that country was oppressing a nearby country and trying to like practice ethnic cleansing or something in another nearby country, that country views this plague as justice and redemption and deliverance and freedom. And so a perspective has a lot to do with this and we don't always understand what is the purpose behind suffering. We maybe can't know sometimes until we reach eternity and some of these things hopefully get revealed to us to where we see it. So I think we need to be careful not to apply the label of of suffering through a very narrow lens. Suffering may be ultimately to our benefit. It may be ultimately to someone else's benefit or to God's benefit, to God's glory. And it's sometimes impossible for us to know that. But I'll say this, and it may sound weird for people to hear, but for all the people that have died from COVID-19, who trusted in Jesus, their perspective on what they went through right now is that it's one of the best things that ever happened to them. And that may be a new way to look at this. For the people that trusted in Jesus and died from this coronavirus, they're looking back on it and going, man, I'm so glad that happened so I can finally be here. This is awesome. I wouldn't wanna go back for anything. Now, I know that's hard for us to imagine. I can't imagine that. Because from my perspective, I don't wanna catch it. I don't wanna go to heaven right now. I have more I want to do on this earth. You know, I know Paul felt the same way. He was torn between those two kind of concepts. But we do know that for the people that are already there, they don't look back on this as suffering. Or if they do, it's suffering that was well worth it for where they're at right now. So we need to maybe have a more nuanced and, and broad big picture perspective of what we tend to label as suffering.
0: Yeah, I th- and I think that leads into the next topic, which is what's the message? Let's, let's, what's, how are we supposed to take away any meaning from that and, and be anywhere close to accurate as to what God might be wanting to communicate, if anything, to us? So I'm gonna, we're gonna watch one video and then I have two email sub, uh, submissions. So let's listen to Stacy's question.
2: Historically, I have noticed that every time a census occurs, it coincides with a disaster. For example, Jesus' birth and Herod, 2000 was Y2K, 2010 was Katrina, and 2020 is coronavirus. Could it be a disaster? It's God's way of disapproving a census.
0: Then uh, two two submissions. One is... Can we know if God is trying to tell us something specifically through the coronavirus pandemic? And the other that was emailed to us, many people today are quoting 2 Chronicles 7.14 as a promise for us to claim. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Does this promise apply to us today? And if enough of us repent, will God restore our land by taking away COVID-19?
1: Bill, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) You gave me an easy one here. Uh, You know, it's always good to ask that question about the circumstances of life. You know, is there something God is wanting me to understand or respond to here? I think trying to answer this question of why someone or some group is suffering in a specific situation is fraught with peril. We see why in scripture, uh, Job's friends, they thought they had the answer and they kept pounding on that answer. Job, we know why you've gone through this horrific suffering. You've been sinning and you've done a good job of covering it up to the rest of us. But God knows and that's why you're dealing with this. And they didn't have the answer. And ultimately, they didn't know the real reason There was something going on that was bigger and deeper and more profound than they could have ever imagined. Uh, Same thing with Jesus and his disciples. As they walk by a man who was born blind, the disciples are saying, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. It was so that the works of God might be done through him. So we have to be careful about assigning specific reasons to specific kinds of suffering. And I think that applies in this case. I doubt there would be a way we could discern if God was sending one message to all the people in all the world through this particular uh, pandemic. People are in so many different places. He's made us so individual that I think God is actually more interested in working with us individually or maybe as a group, a, a church. Like, is God saying something to First Free? Well, I would trust our leaders to discern that together with God's guidance, and I need to be listening at a personal level, and I've seen God speaking to my heart. I'm sure you all have too. How would he do that? Well, you look at how he uses the Bible. He uses it to teach us. There may be things we need to learn. He rebukes us. There may be things that we've got going on in our hearts that need to be corrected, and and we need to turn from those. And so that third is correction. What is the direction I need to be going that I haven't been going? And it's also about training in righteousness. So I think if we're looking for things that God may be teaching us, we want to go back, we want to be rooted in the scriptures, and we may be looking in those kinds of categories as to what God may be saying to us, to our families, the people that God maybe have given us responsibility for. That's probably the better place to approach this. When it comes to this 2 Corinthians 7 passage, I think I'll defer to Adam, let him address that. Let me address the one that Stacy brought up, the whole question of the census and is it tied in with that. There could be a couple of reasons why she brought this up. We didn't get a chance to talk to her to find out why. Maybe she's been reading the Old Testament and she read about David and how David took a census in Israel and... The reason he did it aroused God's anger. It actually caused difficulty, suffering for the nation of Israel. We can look at those things in the Bible and say, now wait a minute, does that mean that a nation should never take a census? But we have to read the whole Bible. Because if we read earlier in the Bible, God commanded Moses, Moses, I want you to take a census. So the act of taking a census was not the problem. It, It appears it was the motivation for taking it that was the problem in this case. If that wasn't the reason that she brought it up, maybe she has looked at historical patterns and said, you know, I see this pattern when we've done these different censuses in our country. You could probably look for other patterns that coincided with these censuses that have been done. I bet you would find that there are certain sports teams or individuals in sports that won in that particular... Maybe there were particular technologies that were introduced in those years, maybe there were certain economic or political issues that came up of great significance in those years, that there is a a correlation in the sense that, yeah, these patterns happen, but is there a cause between them and the census? And that's what we have to be careful of, assigning a cause to, to patterns that we can observe yeah that that kind of
0: speculation is just that um, speculation. I, I appreciate what you 're saying. We need to get back into the word we need to figure out what what it says and how we can anchor our beliefs and our positions it 's not far from even the undivided series. you know we want right. you know the, the preferences and the speculation we have about things need to be in a, in a right place so Weigh in on this, at least.
2: And, and the First Timothy series where we talked about Paul saying, don't waste your time on meaningless yes. speculations. Not that it's wrong to ask the question by any means, but I wouldn't spend too much time on it because it just doesn't seem like there's anything in Scripture that would say that it's wrong to have a census. It's, it's worth asking the question, and, and Bill brought out the point that, that Moses actually did a census and was supposed to, and so it's clearly okay. On the Second Chronicles question, when uh, this promise is made by God, it's made to King Solomon that if... If uh, the people who are called by his name will repent of their sins and turn to him, then he'll forgive their sins and he'll restore their land. And I've seen this thrown out a lot by people, especially online. After 9-11, this verse got thrown around all over the place that, oh, this is what we need to do. We need to repent and then God's going to restore our land. And, and, and really the way people are using it is not the way it was originally intended to be used. I doubt most of the people who have shared this verse online have gone back and read the chapter to see what happens. When you go back and read the chapter, you see that Solomon had just built the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. They had just dedicated it. And then God gave a message to Solomon. This was part of his message. Now remember, this is a people who are led by God directly as a nation through their leaders, but this is a special relationship. It isn't quite the theocracy that they had before, but it is where God is working through their leaders and they are supposed to, as a nation, all be following him. That's not the case for us today. That's not the type of nation that we live in. Uh, They had just dedicated the temple. They have a covenant relationship with God as a nation. And so God tells Solomon, if these people reject me after everything we've done here today and this commitment that we have, if they reject me, then I'm gonna destroy the land. I'm gonna withhold rain through drought. I'm gonna send pests like locusts and I'm gonna send plagues and the land will be destroyed. And in the very next verse, he says, but if they will repent and turn back to me, I will forgive their sins and I will restore their land. That's not an analogy, that's not a metaphor, that's literal. It's not used in the Bible the way we use it today sometimes. Restore our land, make our country great, make this a wonderful place to live. No, it literally means your crops will grow again. You will be able to have a harvest because I will restore your land that was destroyed because you turned against me. So I think that it's a mistake to try to use verses like this and pull them out of context and apply them as promises for us today. That's not what they were intended to be. This was a promise to Solomon, to this people with a special covenant relationship with God. That's not to say that we can't learn from it. What do we learn from it? Well, that God is a God of forgiveness that he is a God of second chances. That's a wonderful thing to know about God. We just can't take this specific promise to restore our land as being for us. Now, will God, when people repent and turn to him, will he forgive their sins? Yeah, absolutely. But we know that from other passages, mostly in the New Testament, not from this passage in 2 Chronicles that was meant specifically for Solomon and the people of Israel.
0: That's great. So so big takeaways. It's hard to it's hard to be even close to thinking we could be accurate that there's one message for the whole globe on this. But the New Testament does say whenever hardship comes into the life of a believer or a believing community, it is an opportunity for us to look at our own hearts and say, How are we responding? How are we serving? And in this, we've had things taken away from us. We we can't gather together in a room like we used to. We can't get in the car and go do what we wanted to do. And, and so it is a place for individuals and in all. Of us to say, wow! How am I responding to that? Or I can't. I even. And not, those are small examples. I can't get into the hospital room where my loved one is right now. Yeah. Um, that's that's major, major. But but it's it's all in the context of how is God building us to be the people of God in the church. make a difference. So one other topic I wanted to make sure we get to is the end times, and we allude to a little bit in the sovereignty of God section. So I'm going to share two questions, and then Adam, I'm going to let you weigh in first on this topic. Is the coronavirus one of the signs of the end times? And the second question, should we be spending more time trying to figure out what current events correlate to biblical prophecy?
2: Well, end times prophecy has always really fascinated, with, fascinated me, and I spent a lot of time studying it many years ago. I learned some things in that process that really helped me, and um, one of those was just that I don't think the reason God gave us biblical prophecy was so that we could spend a lot of time trying to predict how it would all play out or trying to make uh, correlations and links between current day events to different things we see specifically in scripture. That just doesn't seem to be the reason why prophecy is given. The Bible never actually tells us with regard to prophecy, go try to figure all this out. It, it doesn't say that. The reason prophecy is given always seems to have the message of be ready. Be, be ready because this is what God is going to do, not um, see if you can figure out the specifics of all of this. In fact, many times God specifically withholds information that would make clear what that prophecy refers to. When, uh, when John is writing Revelation, there are certain things he's just not allowed to tell us because God didn't want us figuring all of the details out. Jesus talked about the fact that no one can know the day or the time that some of these things are going to happen. And so you know, there are certain aspects of this that, that God's not tr- giving us a puzzle for us to try to figure out and solve. As I read scripture, I don't see that in there. So I don't think we should spend a lot of time trying to predict and figure out exactly how current events might correlate. And you know, every few years there's a new theory about it and you just wait a few years and it turns out, well, that couldn't have been that because that's past now and now we're onto some new thing. I just don't think that it's wise to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out the correlation there. I don't see anything in scripture that would tell me that the coronavirus is a sign of the end times itself specifically. If you're talking about the signs in Revelation, those signs are way worse than this. I mean, those are horrible things. That is also after the righteous and the wicked are separated. So we're not in that time at all right now. If you're talking about the signs of Luke 21, when Jesus is speaking about um, pestilences that will come through, I think you could look at all viruses and all pandemics and epidemics and outbreaks that have happened since Jesus was here on this earth and say, that fits under that umbrella of some of those things, those birth pains that we're going to experience until God finally judges and restores and, and, and we get rid of all of those things. I don't think this specifically is um, a sign for us. And, and I think we should be careful not to spend too much time trying to figure it all out or piece it together. Biblical prophecy is not a puzzle for us to solve. It's a promise for us to believe that God will return, God will judge, God will restore, Jesus is coming back. Those are things that we need to believe in and know that they are true. I think God gives us prophecy for three main reasons. One is as a warning, because he's not done yet. And another is as a promise, because he's not done yet. You can look at that both ways. And the other is as markers. So, it's a warning, it's a promise, but they're markers. So, it gives us a warning, it gives us a hope, but then they're markers for after the fact. And we see this in the Old Testament with Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. Peter said the prophets themselves had no idea what their prophecies meant or how they would be fulfilled in Jesus, in the Messiah. They didn't know how any of that was going to play out. And these are the guys that got the messages originally. So who are we to think that we're gonna be able to look at prophecy and piece it all together and be able to tie current events together, but what happened after Jesus came? He walked with people and he opened the Old Testament scriptures and showed them how all these things in there pointed to him and they went, wow, their minds were blown because it was so amazing. I think that part of the reason God gives us prophecy is certainly as a warning and as a hope, but also so that after these things occur, people are going to look back. His people are going to look back and go, you are amazing. You are awesome. They're going to give him praise and glory because they now finally see how he did those things. I just don't see where the Bible says that we are supposed to try to figure them all out ahead of
0: time. I love that. That that prophecy, when it's handled well, helps us to encounter Jesus in a very real way. Yeah. Um, Bill, what about you?
1: Thoughts on this? Yeah, just I understand the impulse to want to know because you see worldwide suffering. This, the impact is global. I mean, these are rare events in, in history and to experience them arouses those questions. At the same time, I, I really appreciate Adam's warning. Uh, we have a good friend, a pastor, and the way he puts it is, I'm on the welcoming committee when it comes to the return of Jesus. I'm not on the planning committee and sometimes we wanna be on that planning committee. We wanna say this, 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 this. Now we have some indications. I mean, Jesus talks about birth pains that will be coming on the world. Wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and so forth. One of the things I wanna focus on that he says in Matthew 24 is that this gospel will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That's a precursor to his return. So that's why we need to be focused on the message of the gospel, of making sure that it is going out to the world, going to our neighbors, going to those who haven't heard. And it also needs to focus us on our own relationship with the Lord. To, to, to go back to the passage that Adam read earlier in Second Peter, talking about the second coming. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Yeah. That's how we
0: prepare. I love that.
1: The, uh, there's a verse in,
0: in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that says, Our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And and the, the suffering and the stuff we're going through, which doesn't feel like momentary all the time, but what I hear you guys saying is we need to keep looking at that ultimate goal and end that God is using. And, and that's the message that we—it's not fuzzy. It's not fuzzy at all. It's very clear for us to understand— what God wants us to be about, sharing the gospel, being his people, helping people who are wrestling with these questions who don't have the hope that we have to encounter Jesus. That's awesome. awesome. Uh, one, one other area, and this is, this is going to be kind of to wrap up, and I'm going to let Adam, you uh, take this on because it leads a little bit into what we'll be talking about next week. But we had some questions about our response to this pandemic. And one of them, uh, how should we pray when we're facing suffering and deep trouble. So how should our understanding of God, his sovereignty, lead us into prayer and helping in this?
2: Yeah, we're gonna talk about this next week. So I wanna point people to that to come back for it. I would say that one thing you know you can do with God is just be real and honest with him. Just be transparent. Where you're struggling, where you're wrestling with fear and doubts and anxiety and all of that, as we read the Psalms especially, but even other parts of scripture, we just see people that were really raw and honest with God and how he honored that and he, and he actually worked through that. He would rather have you be real with him and genuine with him about what you're struggling with. So as you're wrestling through some things, be really open and honest with God about them and, and we're gonna talk A lot more about that next week, so I won't steal any more thunder from that. We're going to have a whole service dedicated to prayer. We pray all the time around here. As you know, all of our meetings, we're spending lots of time in prayer. The the three of us prayed last night extensively for this morning, for all of you watching this. Um, So we pray a lot around here, but next week we're going to have a time where people can submit their prayer requests, and we're going to put those on the screen, and we're going to have a message about prayer and some focused prayer times, so we'll talk more about it next week. Adam and Bill, thank you so
0: much for being here today. You are both such great resources for us as a church, personally and theologically and biblically. So thank you for your service. It's been great to hear from you today. Thanks, John. Thank you. Uh, if you want to go deeper into this topic after the service, right on your screen, there are going to be some questions that will be scrolling by. Take some time as a family, as a couple, individually, uh, to consider and think about some of these questions. If you're a small group or a Sunday morning class that goes through sermon-based uh, topics you're going to work through these together as your group so we're excited about that One of the themes that I heard from both Bill and Adam is that this is a time for us to share the gospel. Some of the questions that were submitted talked about, I have friends that are asking questions. I have people that I work with or people that I live near who are asking questions. We wanna make sure you have resources wherever you're at in these relationships to be a gospel witness to them. So if you would go to efree.org slash discipleship resources, there's a tool called Pathway to Spiritual Growth that we've developed. The first pathway, is a very basic discovery Bible study that you could do with any friend, regardless of their biblical literacy or illiteracy. You could, you could just share this with them, walk through some basic principles and stories in the Bible, and let the Holy Spirit do the work. He's better than this, at this than we are anyway. Let him do the work of exposing and showing himself to the people who you are working with. So go to efree.org slash discipleship resources and you'll find that tool. If you're struggling at all with anything, personally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, financially, if your job job situation, if there's any way we can help, go to efree.org. Um, and right there, there's a tab right on the main page on the COVID-19 banner. Click, I need help. And we have a team of people that are ready to help you. Let's pray and thank God for this wonderful time of looking into his word. Father, thanks for letting us have this creative way to open your word today. Thank you for Adam and for Bill for their ministry here, for their uh, wisdom and the experience and the knowledge that they've shared with us. I pray that you would take every word that was said, every topic that was covered, and by your Holy Spirit, just kind of melt it into our souls so that we can be the people that you've called us to be, and that your kingdom will be moved forward as we share with other people the truth we know from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.